All right, well, if you haven't been with us, we have been discussing, uh, well, several things over the last year, I guess, about leadership. What is it to be a godly leader? And the last two times we've met, we're talking about leading with love specifically, and how does the, the attribute of love dictate how we lead? Specifically, we're starting with the area of marriage. We'll finish this part of uh, the series today and move on to another uh, aspect next time. <clears throat> but we've been looking at two passages primarily. We began by looking at Colossians 3.19, which simply says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. And started to build out a theme, which is that Christian husbands must intentionally cultivate genuine love for their wives. Pretty simple and straightforward, and yet as we get into that topic, we realize there's there's a lot there. And so we've also uh, began with this command. Command number one is simply to cultivate love. Husbands, love your wives. And we talked about the fact that love there is a present active imperative. It's a command in the present tense, meaning it's ongoing and it's active, meaning we're to put our effort towards it. And that we define that, that Greek word, love, there as to have a warm regard for or interest in another, to cherish or have affection for, to love. So we're to give our, our effort towards having this warm regard and interest for our wives. We've also hit on this key concept that our love for our wives and really our role in general beyond love is, is independent of how well our wife is doing on a given day or, or, or just in general at her role. That they're based off of our relationship with the Lord. It's because of our commitment and love for Him that we love our wives. Only when we see it that way can we really fulfill the command to love our wives. <clears throat> now, we went from there to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, of course, is the key text on marriage that most of us are familiar with. And we dissected that. I'm just going to remind you quickly of what we saw. If you missed those, you can go back and listen to those lessons. But we need to have this in mind as we come to our final topic today. So he gave us a couple of key descriptions about love, the love of a husband for a wife. He said, first of all, description number one, it's as Christ loves the church, that we are to love as he has loved us. And really that boiled down to two aspects. Of, it was to be sacrificial love. And it's to be sanctifying, sacrificial and sanctifying. That's how Christ loves his church. He gave himself for the church, obviously, on the cross to die for our sins. But also we saw this idea that he washes his bride with the word. And that his, his love for us has a sanctifying influence. And so, in like manner, our love for our wives is to have as its highest aim her sanctification. We're washing her with the word. The word, then, is the means that the Spirit uses to sanctify each of us, and therefore the Word is the means that we, we ought to be bringing our wife and our family back to the truth of Scripture, that God might use it by His Spirit to sanctify her. The second description, not only do we love uh, as Christ loves the church, but He says, as you love yourself. And this is Ephesians five twenty-eight to 30. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. There we saw two aspects of that kind of love, two ways that we typically love ourselves that we're to also extend to our wives. They are the words nourish and cherish. We're to nourish our wives and cherish our wives, providing for her, her needs. Now that brings us uh, close to where we kind of left off last time, and we turned our attention to one final text in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is where we'll spend our time this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 3, remember, in the early verses, beginning in verse 1, he starts with the role of the wife and explains what she is to be and how she's to treat specifically a husband in this context that's unfaithful, not, not adulterous, but not following the Lord, perhaps an unbeliever. How is a wife to respond? Um, and then in verse 7, Peter turns his attention to us as men. And this is where I want us to think for a moment. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. He says, You husbands, in the same way, 
Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she's a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, we, we've seen a couple of instructions here. We, we talked about these last time, but let me remind you. Instruction number one, he says, live with your wife in an understanding way. And we define that understanding way, literally in the Greek text, it says, according to knowledge. Live with your wife according to knowledge. And so it, it doesn't mean that we can understand our wives fully, that that's even possible for us, but that we are to strive to understand her needs, her desires, and to meet those and to, and to love and, and serve her and lead her in conjunction with that. And he says, he gives us a reason. The instruction is to live with her in an understanding way. And he says, for this reason, because she's physically weaker. She's a weaker vessel. And we talked about what does that mean? It doesn't mean that she's weaker in character or that she's weaker emotionally. It's, it's, I think it has to revolve around physical weakness. She's physically weaker than us. God has made us as males, stronger than our wives. And it puts her in a vulnerable position because she's to be in submission to us and, and really is having to trust the Lord because uh, she's physically weaker and God has made us to be the leaders of our home, to be the caretakers of our wives, to be the protectors of our wives. And that's an aspect of, of why he's made men stronger than women. The second instruction here is, is where we ended our discussion, and he says to show your wife honor, or to live with her in an understanding way, number one, and secondly, to show her honor. The word honor is just a a form of respect, or to treat our wives with honor and respect. And just like the first reason, or the first instruction, he gives us a reason why. And here's here's where we're going to spend our time. Here's the reason why we must treat our wives with honor. It's because she is spiritually equal. She's spiritually equal. In that text, he says, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. As a fellow heir of the grace of life. And this is a good reminder that our role as leaders in our home has nothing to do with some intrinsic value or or favoritism that God has for men or for us, or because we are more worthy of leadership. If you're honest with yourself, you know that's not true. Um, in fact, our wives in many areas are more competent than we are. And so let's be honest about that. <clears throat> it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with God's choice, God's design. Why, why are we leaders of our home? God designed it that way. I mean, it's as simple as that. This is what God saw as best and, and that's why we have this, this gift and responsibility to lead our homes. But from the very beginning, we understand in the Genesis account, creation account, men and women both were made in the image of God. We are, we are equal in, in value. We're equal in, as image bearers. And we are equal, if, if we're in Christ, we're equal heirs of the grace of life. Uh, the, the, the change comes as a matter of function and role that we are to lead our wives and she is to submit to that. But this is a good reminder, men. Hopefully, um, I think I know all of you, hopefully your wives are in, in the Lord. Let's assume that they are. That means she is a sister in Christ. She's not just your wife. She is your sister in Christ, a fellow heir of the grace of life. So ask yourself this, do you treat your wife not only as your wife, but as a sister in Christ? Do you, re- do you respond to her with that thought in mind? As a believer, as one who will be with you in eternity, your relationship is not just about this life, it is connected to the life to come, not in, not in the marriage relationship, but in, in Christ, that we're in Christ together. Think about this. Let's, let's talk about this for a second. Why do you think it's easier sometimes to show respect to strangers or casual acquaintances than to our wives? Why is it easier to, with your, your boss or just somebody at the grocery store to be naturally more respectful and polite? And then sometimes in the marriage relationship, that's where the ugliest side of your personality comes out. Why is that? What are some of the reasons for that? I think that's, that's part of, true love in a relationship and true love and in a relationship 
<clears throat> you see both sides. The most emotional, lovey-dovey sides, and sometimes the most angry and not so lovey-dovey sides. And along with that, you know, comes repenting of that to your wife, or vice versa, and forgiving each other for those moments, and and praising and and glorifying each other in the in the good moments, and being thankful for them. Right. Yeah. So the idea of this that the closeness of relationship allows for that. Yeah. For sure. Why, why else? I think also a lot of times with strangers, it's a kind of a popcorn relationship. Mm -hmm. Around someone briefly, and so not willing to let them see who the true you is. Mm -hmm. But the true us sometimes is ugly. Right. And with you know, with your with your spouse, that whether you whether you want to or not, true character comes out quickly, and mm -hmm. you're vulnerable, exposed, and that's really your that's your true self. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anybody else want to add? Jump on that. Mm -hmm. because then you have to follow up you know if you're, mm -hmm. it doesn't it's not as impactful if you have to say I'm sorry to a stranger or you know even on the polite side you know, it doesn't it just doesn't cost you as much to, to yeah. show them some courtesy because that can all be superficial mm -hmm. uh, but you, you you know living in proximity with your wife you've got you know you're you're less likely to give up some of the freedoms you'll give up with a stranger yeah Mm-hmm. For sure. Anybody else want to talk about that? Sometimes with our wives, we might uh, hold on to those records of wrongs and mm -hmm. they flavor uh, our words. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. There's a anger or, or a lack of forgiveness and it comes out and... I think I care more about what others think than what my wife thinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a fear of man aspect that comes into our more social relationships. We want to be thought of a certain way. And the, that probably characterized more of our relationship with our wives. I mean, I hope that we've grown to a point that it still characterizes our relationship with our wives. But definitely in the dating, courting, engagement stage, that, that probably flavored your relationship more than it does years into marriage. Uh, for some of those same reasons, there you're trying to impress, and that, and and then once you're married, you feel like, well, you don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> I think it's helpful for us to think about because it it this passage, all the passages we've read, <coughs> flip that paradigm on it on its head and says, no, the the primary relationship in which love should be most obvious in the way we treat our wife or our person is in the marriage relationship with our wife that it's the wife, our wife, that we're to respect and honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And so I bring that up because if we've been allowing ourselves to just ignore or be okay with that dichotomy of my wife gets the worst of me and everyone else gets the best of me, we're disobedient to the description of, of what God describes marriage as. She, she should get the best of you. Not that we should be unpolite to others. We should be like Christ in those relationships too. But we, we cannot be uh, okay with treating our wives in a way that's lesser than what the Scriptures require. <clears throat> now, why is this so essential? Well, it gives us one key motivation here at the end of this text. If you look back at 1 Peter 3, 7, he says, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she's a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that, here's our motivation, your prayers will not be hindered. So that your prayers will not be hindered. This is a really good reminder. And this is, this is what I've been sort of mulling over in my mind, is this, this concept of the connection between a disobedience in the way we treat and love our wives, and this fact that God says, if you do that, your prayers will be hindered. I want to talk about what that means. I want to talk about how that happens. I think the, the key concept here that we often miss is that our relationship with God is not separate from our human relationships. We, we can't put our relationship with God in a box and then put our relationship with other people in a different box. Because when we sin against a human being, we also sin against God every time. 
that the two are connected. David re- re- recognized this. You remember David's sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah. Um, he's murdered Uriah. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. And yet in Psalm 51, when David repents of his sin, let's listen to what he says. We're going to start in verse 1. This is Psalm 51, verse 1. I'll read the first four verses. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Think about that, verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned. What's David communicating there when he says that? What are, what, what's behind that? Is it the idea that whoever, when we sin against a human, we're sinning against an image bearer of God, so in turn we're sinning against God? Is it's that like the same? Yeah. He's thinking it's yeah. like the same, you know, when I say it's not different. Sin against man, sin against God. They're, yeah, the two are always connected, and which... It's not that David is, he's, he's not oblivious to the fact that he's obviously sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, right? right? But he is understanding that the gravity of the sin is the fact that I have disobeyed God. That's where it begins. And, and I, I cannot be reconciled to man and, and, and without being reconciled to God. There has to be a reconciliation process here uh, that's important before this you know, horizontal relationship can be fixed. And we have to understand that connection, too, that every time we sin against anyone, it's primarily and first and foremost a sin against God, and then secondarily a sin against that individual. So he's not saying it wasn't sinful towards them. It is. But he's understanding the connection that, wow, in doing this, I didn't just sin against these people horizontally. I, I greatly offended my Heavenly Father. And then by doing that, it hindered his prayer. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Well, I will get there, but yeah, it <laughs> hindered, you know, in, in Psalm 32, which is the other psalm of David's repentance, he describes this period in which he was unrepentant as all my vitality, all my strength was was wasted away. I could, it was like the fever heat of summer, he says. He says, I, it was just bearing down on me. So there was this, this divine hand of, of discipline upon him that he could physically feel in that time of unrepentance. And so that's where with, that's why the the to come out of that it required first a full forthright repentance to God, that then allowed him to make it right with everyone else. So yes, there was a, there was David confesses there was a a disturbance, a major disturbance in his fellowship with God because of this sin, and that's part of what Peter's getting at here for us as well. The same thing happens in every instance. Now, what I want to dive deep on though is why. Why is our sin towards others a sin against God? So before we move on from this passage, I want us to look at a couple other passages because as I started to think about this, some other connections began to come together. I want us to look at a couple of passages from the Upper Room Discourse. There's a lot of themes in the Upper Room Discourse with that last meeting with Jesus and his disciples before his arrest. But the theme that I want to focus on is how Jesus connects... Our love for Christ and our obedience to his commands. That there is a direct correlation between true love for God and obedience to God. So we're going to look at a couple of passages just quickly. Turn to the Gospel of John. And chapter 14. Verse 15, John 14, 15 is where we'll start, and then we'll jump, jump around in other places within this discourse. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 23, same chapter, just down a few more verses. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. 
He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now look at chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, he said several times here in different ways that there is a direct connection with our love for him and our obedience to his commands. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then he follows that in verse 12, chapter 15, verse 12, by giving this commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And he goes on to describe that love. Greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the, in, of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Now let's talk about the connections here. Our love for God, he says, will result in obedience. And the command that he gives right after that, an expression of our love for him, is our love for others. If you love me, you obey my commandments. This is my commandment, that you love one another in the same way that I've loved you, that your love will be characterized in that same way. So our lack of love for others then is disobedience to God's command, which in turn evidences a bigger issue of a lack of love for God. You see that the connection there. So, so think of David's example again. In disobeying God's command by committing adultery and committing murder, ultimately David was revealing a lack of love for God in those actions. And that's, there, there was part of the reason, part of the offense. So he, he was willing to break the commands of God to get what he wanted, and therefore he chose to love those things more than his love for God, which is really what idolatry is. And God was angry with him, rightly so. And so this is how we have to connect it. When we are unloving towards our wives, we're acting unlovingly towards God because we're disobeying his commands. And that's, that's where the, the disconnect comes. And, and when we are, are willing to sin to get what we want, we are essentially committing the sin of idolatry in some way. That thing, uh, it could even, not, doesn't have to be an object, it could be respect, it could be whatever, but that thing becomes more important in the moment than honoring and loving God, and we love that thing more than God, and we go after it. And so at, at the base level, all sin reveals a lack of love for God in the way that it should be. And if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, when we don't do that, the book of Hebrews tells us, we'll get here at some point, Hebrews 12, um, that that invites and brings the discipline of God upon a true believer. Even as a true believer, we will not love God perfectly until he brings us home. Hopefully, we un let's make that clear. Um, but for a true believer, when we're in sin, living in a pattern of sin, we will experience what David described of that heavy hand of the Lord, where my, my strength was drained away as in the fever heat of summer. That's the discipline of God. We see it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 through 7. He says, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And he quotes another passage. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, take that back into the context of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. I believe what, what Peter's describing here is this reality of the discipline of the Lord coming into the life of a Christian husband who is willfully sinning against his wife by not living with her in an understanding way, and not treating her with the honor and respect that God has commanded. The result of that would be a disconnect, a, 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 
a, a distancing in our fellowship with God. Not that we lose our salvation, but there's this distance, just like with your children, if you have children, and your, your kid sins against you, disobeys. Until that is resolved, he's not stopped being your son, but there is a tension between the two of you until that is disciplined and brought back into a line. That's what's happening here. There's this dis- distance between us and the Lord and our fellowship because of our sin against our wives. And Peter says what that looks like is your prayers are hindered. Not that God doesn't hear our prayers. He hears everything. He knows our prayers. He's choosing not to respond to our prayers as an act of discipline because of our rebellion against him in this way. You remember Jesus described the same reality in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say there? Matthew 5, beginning in 21, he says, You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. This is another way of describing the same reality. Jesus says, when you are sinning against a brother... You're not right with God. So don't bring your offering to the altar as if you and God are fine until you have first gone and made it right with the brother or sister who you've sinned against. Go and repent, then bring your offering to God. Because otherwise it's hypocrisy, right? With the outward show, God and I are good. And we can do the same thing, guys. We don't, we don't go to the altar and make sacrifices because Christ has done that. But we can sure come to church and act like everything's great when we've just chewed out our wives or our kids, right? Um, and so he's saying that you cannot live as a hypocrite. As soon as you recognize, man, I'm just sinned against so-and-so, go and make it right first. Then come and that worship. That's Matthew 5, 21 to 24. Um, and so often when we, we live with our wives in an understanding way, or, or we lack living with our wives in an understanding way, there's an indication there of several other heart sins that are lying under the surface. Remember, we've talked about this before, but sin always springs from the heart. So if we speak harshly or sinfully or do something, it's indicating there's a heart problem. There's something in my heart that's wrong, and I've got to fix it at the heart level before my mouth and my actions will follow. Now, we, someone hit on this earlier, but often the heart sins that are involved when we don't treat our wives with respect are anger and, unfor- and or unforgiveness in our hearts. And unrepentant anger is a really cancerous sin that has dramatic effects on our relationships. If you, if you allow bitterness, keeping a record of wrongs, and anger to fester in your heart, the overflow of that heart sin is all kinds of ugly manifestations. Um, towards our wives or towards anyone that we harbor that against. What are some of the external manifestations of the heart sin of anger? Let's talk about that for a minute. How does that show up in a relationship? Could be outbursts. Yeah, outbursts of anger speech. When you're driving. Yeah. <clears throat> driving angrily. Could be silent. Yeah, it can be the opposite. It's funny. Anger can make you blow up or clam up. But both are sinful responses. Patient, like condescending. Selfishness, yeah. Uh, What's interesting is um, there is a connection after doing lots of pastoral counseling. There is an undeniable connection between a settled... A heart of anger and sexual sin. Um, I don't know how all of that connects, but I think it's because at the root of both of those is selfishness. Anger is, I've not gotten what I deserve. And so I'm going to let you have it to either punish you for it or to get what I feel like I deserve. Sexual sin is, 
I'm not content. I, I, I need something else outside of my marriage or more than my marriage to make me feel fulfilled in this way. And so it's that selfishness that drives both. But often when, I, when I'm counseling with a very angry man, there will be also patterns of sexual sin involved with those things. Wendell, yeah. One of the best descriptions of bitterness I've ever heard was someone who thinks, I'm going to take a pill of poison thinking it'll kill the other person. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly, yeah. It's ruining you. You think you're going to get the other person. Yeah, it's so destructive, right, to our spiritual lives, and, and we don't even realize it in the, in the moment, um, for, unfortunately, for long periods of time. It can be bringing up past offenses, you know, that whole record of wrongs that was brought up earlier, always having them ready as that we never let them live it down, assuming the worst of the other person. When you have a settled sense of anger, everything they do, you question. The nicest things, well, why did you do that? Are you, are you, are you, what do you, what do you want from me? Are you trying to, everything's a manipulation tactic, right? We're suspicious of, of, of everything. That's a, that's a, a, a heart sin of anger. A, a refusal to accept the other person's point of view. Ever do that when you're in a discussion with your wife and she has a different point of view? And so the whole while that she's talking, you're, you're formulating your response in your mind instead of, giving her the honor of listening to her perspective and actually considering that it might be a better idea than yours. Attacking the other person's character or motives to them or to others. That comes from a settled sense of anger. Making hurtful comments disguised as jokes. Well, you ever do that? It's a, yeah, it's, a, it's supposed to be ha ha ha, but it's, it reveals your real thoughts about, about her. Yeah, we've got to be careful there. And then, of course, in its worst and most obvious forms, physical violence or either in threat or actuality. But I bring this up because when we are unwilling to live with our wives in an understanding way and show her honor and respect, often some version of the sin of anger or unforgiveness is, is hanging around in our hearts, and we just want to kill it. And it's helpful to bring out some of these outward examples uh, because then we can kind of trace it back to its origin and say, oh, yeah, I have been doing that. Um, and, and that there is a sense in which I, I need to forgive my wife and love her <clears throat> sacrificially. So let's commit ourselves then to keep short accounts with our wives. What I mean by that is settle things quickly. As, as the scripture says in Ephesians, that we're not to let the sun go down on our anger. That's the idea that you, hand, you, you handle that business quickly, you, you forgive, you move on, you reconcile before the end of the day. And so that we don't keep those record of wrongs that just sort of uh, get <clears throat> replayed over and over again and get bigger and bigger and bigger. But what Peter's telling us here is that we should not be surprised if our spiritual growth and prayer life are stunted if we're living in sin against our wives. Don't be surprised that you're struggling. I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling. I just can't get motivated to read the word. And If you're living in a pattern of sin, there is distance between you and the Lord. And so that, that pattern of sin has to be confessed and repented of before we are back in close fellowship with the Lord. <clears throat> Don't fool yourself into thinking that you can have a pattern of sin on the one hand and uh, with a person and then a great relationship with the Lord on the other. It's just the two are incompatible, but we do that sometimes. Um, and so repentance really is our only option. Repentance first to the Lord, and then the hard repentance of sitting down face-to-face with our wives and confessing. Sweetheart, please forgive me. Without caveat, I've been treating you like, and just say, say whatever you've been doing. With no, you know, I know I've been doing this, but you, right? That's not repentance. <laughs> repentance is, please forgive me. I have no excuse before the Lord for sinning against you in this way. And, and there's where the, now we have a new foundation on which we can begin to build a healthy relationship. That actually, that kind of interaction, um, it builds up your marriage and your relationship with, with her. And, and that's how... It, you can then lead her to Christ um, and, and bring the word to bear 
We should be the lead repenters in our home. Our family, our kids, and our wives should know how to repent of sin because they've seen it and heard it from us uh, so many times. We're going to have conflict. We're going to sin against our wives. That's, that's not possible, unfortunately. I so wish it was. But what we don't have to do is be in a pattern of sin or allow that sin to ruin our marriage. We can actually have conflict and it be a positive outcome if we do it with a repentant, soft, kind heart towards our wives instead of uh, sinfully forcing our own way. Think of... Yeah. You know, I mean, it's actually an out for us to have the uh, mm. grace of be reminded when you start praying. Yeah. It's a good reminder too. Just like like discipline with our with our kids. The goal is reconciliation with our kids. We don't want to live in hostility with our kids, right? So we bring discipline into their lives. The Lord does the same thing. He brings that discipline. It. He says no discipline is enjoyable in the moment, but it's beneficial to the one who's trained by it. I think that's what. What Preston's getting at there, there, there is, he, he actually mentions it in a positive way in Hebrews 12. It means you're a son. If you're under the discipline of the Lord, it means he treats you as a son. Because he doesn't do that with unbelievers. Um, and so it's, a, it's, it's really a, a beckoning call to come back that motivates us to come back. 1 John 5, 2 and 3 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God. Listen to this. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. I've been dwelling on that last phrase. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Have you ever felt like the commandments, let's just be honest, some commandments were burdensome, pretty tough to keep? I mean, there, as I thought about it, I thought, you know, there are, there's... Sometimes where the commandments feel pretty burdensome. It's hard to go and do the things that God says to do. So what is John getting at here when he says, and his commandments are not burdensome? <clears throat> Think of it this way. In the context of love of God, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. The reason that the commandments of God are not burdensome for the Christian who's in a right relationship with the Lord is because they are motivated by genuine love. When you really love the Lord and you understand the commandment in the context of your love for the Lord, it's not an overbearing, heavy-handed, legalistic, you, you better or I'm going to strike you down with a lightning bolt, right? It's in the context of, of genuine love. If you think about it when... when in the loving relationship that you hopefully have with your, with your wife, if... if 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 you are if she asks you, hey sweetheart, can you get me a glass of water? Can you do whatever? Um, sure. Yeah, it's not a burden for me to serve my wife in that way. I love her, right? And the same the same concept in a much bigger way with the Lord. When when he says treat your wife in this way, it's oh, not this oh this heavy burdensome weight. It's okay, absolutely. I love the Lord, and I want to I want to serve the Lord and honor Him. So not only are they not a burden, but they bring life. Right? They're, it's life-giving to think about the commands of the Lord. So I'd encourage you to think about that. First John 5, 3. Dwell on that. It has both concepts. The connection of love and obedience, but also the connection of obedience to the fact that it's not burdensome if it's driven by love. So there's also a good test. If you're feeling that just the commandments of God are just a heavy weight and a burden, go back to the love test. Am I really loving God? In this moment, am I, am I, evaluate your love for the Lord because when we are loving the Lord, that's when the commandments cease to be a burden. So we have some evaluation here to do. What I want to encourage you to do is think through a couple of things. One, have you been connecting your relationship with your wife to your relationship with the Lord? Have you made that connection? That, that I, I can't pretend like God and I are good when I know I'm, I have unconfessed sin to my wife, right? Don't make that mistake. Is your spiritual life really floundering in the sense that it's, you know, you're just not growing, you're struggling, lacking motivation to pray, to read the Word? It may very well be um, 
if there's a pattern of sin in your life, there you go. There's the, there's the big ticket item that first needs to be dealt with. Confess that sin to the Lord and to that person, and it removes that obstacle of tension between you and the Lord. And we have to honestly ask ourselves, are there any things I need to repent of to my wife this morning? Am I living with her in an understanding way? Am I treating her with honor and respect? Now, all of us have, we could make lists of ways we could grow in this, okay? So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that most people are actually perfect in this, and if you're feeling guilty, you're probably the only one. We should all be feeling some heaviness and weightiness right now if we're actually thinking. Um, and if you're not, get some more coffee and drink it and then think about it again. Because we, we all should feel a weight of, you know what, I, I, I need to grow in how I treat my wife in this. What I'm asking you to do is go ahead and put your finger on that thing. What, are, what is that thing or ten things? And confess them and then begin to make real efforts towards change in those areas. But I want to open this up. This is now part three of this series on loving our wives. We've said a whole lot. Um, I want to take just a couple of minutes to let you ask questions. Is there yes, dialogue about this? this the, the topic as a whole, it could be what we talked about specifically today or any part of it. Do you have any questions you'd like to ask we could talk about? And then I want to break up for a moment and, and pray together um, for our marriages. But just open the floor. Any questions that you have? I know there, there's been times for me like when his commandments felt heavy or I thought they were heavy, but then when I obeyed, I was like, oh, man, this is so light. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Um, yeah. It just truly is light. What's really heavy is sin. Yeah. And yet, and yet when we're in sin... We deceive ourselves and say what's going to be heavy is, is repenting of this sin until you repent. And you're like, wow, that was heavy. This is light. You know? And we see that God's commands are they're, they're not only not burdensome, but they're far good. He's, he commands what's good for us. So it, it makes sense when we do them. It's like, oh, yeah, this is way better. Um, so, yeah, it's a great point. They're really, they're really not. We deceive ourselves. What else? Questions or thoughts? We got our, our marriages all worked out. That's good. Move on to the next thing. All right. Well, let's... Uh, said, go ahead. You think the heaviness, though, too, is related to... I mean... Not heaviness of sin, but I'm thinking of more of a... Uh, I don't speak for my... For, I, I feel very close to God, but I feel like that's the correlated... Running in his word all the time. Mm-hmm. And it keeps, um, it's a connection. I feel like a connection of a person. If a guy can't get regular with his wife well, I think there's a connection to the word mm-hmm. in his life that's hindering that. Uh, otherwise, what's, what's convincing him to obey? Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like it starts with that personal issue. Yeah. Mind all the sins, but still, you can't reconcile your sins well if you still don't get the word. Exactly. I mean, the idea is when he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments, the thought there is that you actually know what those commandments are, which assumes that you are in the word or have a knowledge of the word. But you're right. I mean, when it comes to sanctification, as we talked about, there is no, the sanctification happens through the ministry of the word, the spirit ministers the word. So. Yeah, we're, we're, we're hopeless to live these things out if we're not regularly, daily, washing our minds with this truth. The truth. <clears throat> That's good. Anybody else have a thought on this? I was just curious to hear from some of you guys on when you repent of sin to your wife, are you trying to go practical to, hey, when we talked two hours ago, when we were talking about this, like how practical do you take it? Do you do you try to hammer down in this conversation? I was sinning against you in this way. I was ignoring your input, and I'd already made up my mind. Or do you just kind of generally? Kind well, of I think there's two things. One, if you've been in a pattern of sin towards your wife for some time, and you've not been in a pattern of repenting, you're not going to be able to go back and and name all one thousand times you did that, right? 
And so there's kind of that initial coming together to say, listen, I've been living in a pattern of sin to you in my speech. And you might list some ways that have come to mind. But then to say it's turning around saying, but now I'm committed to speaking to you in a way that honors the Lord. And so I'm, I'm going to do much better at keeping short accounts. Now it looks like, please, as soon as you realize it, please forgive me. I spoke unkindly to you just then. Would you please forgive me? So now it becomes... Because we're keeping short accounts, yeah, it gets pretty granular at that point. But I don't think uh, if you've been in a pattern for some time, like I said, that you're not going to be able to list every single thing. Just like when we get saved, we, we can't list every sin we've ever committed. We don't even know. But we come and have a general repentance. We, we list the categories of sin that have been highlighted. But yeah, I think the, a healthy relationship is... Y'all are washing dishes together, and you you snap at her about something, and as soon as you realize that, you honestly say, please forgive me for that. That was unkind and, and sinful. And that builds a healthy uh, dynamic in your marriage. Yeah. Is it, is it healthy to be washing dishes together? Well, <laughs> that's another discussion. You know, when you wash the dishes for your wife. Yeah. But, I, yeah, I think... Um, so, does that make sense, John? Yeah, that was helpful. But some of you other men uh, want to jump in on that and how you handle that and repenting to your wife? <clears throat> I think learning tools to use um, to do that, you know, find a way where it's, um, you know, challenge the person that would be willing to actually, sometimes you don't know something, ask your wife, say, you know, what do you see in me that I don't see in myself? Being very vulnerable and listen, that helps come back to maybe what I'm not seeing that I am saying to her, and help me see in my own heart what I'm maybe what I was saying because it can become confusing sometimes as we conflict and keep talking and we're just not listening. And I think we tend to do that. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. And and I'm just sharing some practical. I mean, we've we've learned to do what we call knee to knee, where we We'll sit in front of one another and we can ask one another, you know, how about pushing my heart, your heart away from me? Because there's something happening and we need to, we both want to reconcile. We want to keep going on this path. It's not, it's not helping. Yeah. To piggyback that, um, is on a regular, you know, constantly um, having a conversation, an intentional conversation, every couple of weeks about that. It's about how, or if we're talking about it, how am I doing with that? Mm-hmm. From your perspective, I can think I'm doing great. Right. But I still feel like something's there, but I'm not really giving it any kind of thought. Mm-hmm. You know? So on a regular basis, you continue to do that so that you can constantly washing with the word and constantly look, reflecting on what you've done and obviously repenting of that. Right in front of her, talking to her on the regular, like you know, mm-hmm. continually do that. So, yeah, yeah, I'd encourage you to do that if you haven't. But I, I do prepare your heart well before you do it, though, because it doesn't help if when she brings up something, you start justifying why you did that, right? So, go ahead, Wendell. <clears throat> it's a great illustration of not letting the sun go down on your wrath. I, I was reading a testimony. Uh, this couple had been married for 60 years, and uh, they, uh, the pastor had asked them to share their testimony. And the guy says, well, it's pretty simple. We go to bed, we share anything we've had that we disagreed with, we kiss, we hug, we pray, we go to sleep. <laughs> that was the formula. Yeah. You know? yeah. Of course, a lot of us struggle. We don't go to bed at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. No, but, but the, well, the point is well made. You, having, keeping a daily contact on those things, and it doesn't. You know, some of the big potholes in marriage that we was like we can't go, we can't talk about that, so we have to walk around that landmine. Really, they're not that big of a deal. They're a small thing that we've just let fester and we've not dealt with. And so, if you get in the habit of quick, you know, not keeping keeping short accounts, not letting the sun go down your anger. They don't become landmines, right? You don't allow any landmines that you can't talk about. Yeah. I just want to add, I want to something Preston said, I kind of your thought. I said, you know, we can, we're men, we're kind of 
linear sometimes. We don't know what we don't know. Our wives are pretty, you know, uh, pretty sharp. Uh, we need to make it safe for them to mm -hmm. help us learn some of the things we're doing. Sometimes I think we don't do that. Yeah. If we come up with it and, hey, I'm, I'm owning what I did and look at me, and, and not that our intention's wrong, but yeah. we're not that smart sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. But we have to make a safe space for our wife to speak to us in terms of when we might have wounded her, but yet we don't even realize that little pebble we threw was really a boulder. Yeah. To make that safe space for her to speak to us. And sometimes you have to, you have to actually develop that language. You know. Yeah. She can say it in a way that's really nagging. We can respond poorly, or we can develop that safe conversation where she says, "I, I want to share something that, that maybe didn't realize happened." You know. Mm -hmm. Now all of a sudden your the walls go down. You're a little more receptive to. Gosh, babe, I'm sorry. What what did I do or what did I say or. Yeah. So we have to we have to also be keep them in mind in terms of our own sin and give them the ability to help us. Yeah. And they'll see it much more clearly than we see our own sin. We, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. So that's a key aspect. Uh, but like we said, with humility and re being really truly ready to receive whatever she may have to say without justification. If you haven't been in that pattern, I encourage you to do that. And also just one closing thing on that. If you're in conflict, there's conflict or tension between you and your wife, assume because it's true, that you're sinning in some way. You've contributed sin to that situation. Instead of just trying to point, figure out and point out what she's done wrong, start with, how am I sinning against my wife? Uh, and be very suspicious of your own heart. And your role is ultimately not to identify and point out her sin for to help her. We're, will, we're willing to help her. Uh, your, your role is to test your own heart and confess whatever's there. And sometimes in those situations, I'll know, I know I've sinned against you in, in some way, but I, because I'm a sinner, I, I can't see it. Help me see it. What have, what, how have I sinned against you? And then it's been very helpful to say, well, this is like, God, I didn't even see that. And that, that promotes, uh, that's how you lead through a situation, uh, is by confessing and looking for your own sin. Well, let's take a moment. Um, just, I know some of you guys may need to get to work. You can slip out if you need to, but just break up in pairs where, where you're at and uh, two or three uh, and, and just pray for each other and we'll close our time that way, okay?